The Money Podcast with your hosts, Justin Harrison and David Bester. Money, 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 money. Let's talk about money. Today, we talk to one of South Africa's most senior women in the financial service sector. She is passionate about making financial services accessible to all South Africans, and she is the group CEO of Momentum Investments and the deputy CEO of Momentum Metropolitan Holdings. Jeanette Marais, welcome to The Money Podcast. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege for me to be here today. So Jeanette, I want to know, for someone who doesn't know you at all or who has never heard of you, can you sum up your career quickly and then tell us what has been the most single most important lesson you have learned? So Davi, if you ask me to do it in one sentence, I will say I'm a privileged girl to be at the top of financial services in South Africa and I come from a farm in the free state where I grew up. If you wanted a little bit more detail, I'll tell you that I have yeah, grown up in the Free State. I, I studied at the university in Bloemfontein, and then I moved to Gauteng, and I started my career actually at Momentum Life in the early 90s as an actuarial student. I then moved on, and after that, I worked for four other financial services companies before returning to the group four years ago as part of a turnaround strategy for Momentum Metropolitan Group. So real full circle for me in my career. And it just feels like where I've started my career is also where I'm going to end it. Your second question was just around the single most important career lesson that I've learned. Well, and here maybe today I'm speaking to women who are starting out in our industry. When I did, it was completely male-dominated, totally 100%. In fact, I've worked in this industry for 30 years. I've never at one of the companies that I've started or worked at had a woman more senior than myself in the boardroom or in, you know, on the executive committee. So in a way, I've been privileged to be a trailblazer for women in our industry. So what have I learned? If in the early 90s, when I walked into, well, this organization or any other one, and I looked up and I saw no women, I could have thought women doesn't make it in this place. I didn't. My attitude was, wow, there's no women. What an opportunity. These guys are going to realize very soon that they'll need a woman. And I'm going to be sure, I'm going to make sure that I'm that one, that I'm ready, that I'm there and that I can grab that opportunity if it comes along. And amazingly for me, it did come along every single time. And, you know, I think what I drew back on was just how I grew up. My dad have taught me from a very young age that the world don't owe you anything. you got to mm. work hard for everything you get. And I did. I think I worked harder. I worked longer hours. I was willing to sacrifice. I was willing to really give everything. And I think it's that attitude. Don't look, ever look up and think there's no place for me here. Whether there's place for you is up to you. Up to your attitude, up to your commitment, and often up to your own hard work. So as a, a plus, Macy, you might appreciate an answer that uh, one of the other guests on our show gave. We were asking about you know, some of his advice for South Africans, and he was talking about the simplicity of planting vegetables. He said it's such a great analogy for life. You plant seeds and you watch them grow and you've got to water them and you've got to care for them and you've got to nurture them. And so I'm thinking about you as a Plas Macy there in the free state growing up and I'm wondering, what was your earliest memory of wanting to create wealth and, and how did you see wealth early on as a child? 
Yeah, it's actually one of the questions that I, I get asked quite a lot. And you know, it, maybe in a way I'm quite privileged in the sense that I grew up in a home where, I mean, we didn't have a lot. We were just farmers, simple people. But my dad, from a very young age, and maybe it was my mathematical mind. I always did well in maths. And, you know, my degree is also a, a BSc with maths and mathematical statistics. So somehow my dad often called me and put me on his lap even long before I went to school. And he would say, we need to buy a new tractor. Help me work out how we'll do it. Now, my dad didn't believe in debt at all. We always had the oldest car. You know, when you ask your mom to drop you off like four blocks from school because you just can't bear that your friends see you in the car. I mean, it's a small community. They all knew what we were driving, but, you know, that, that child. Mm. Um, but how amazing that I was taught forever and ever not to have debt. Now, today, I do look at that a little bit differently because I think there's good debt and there's bad debt. And actually, for my dad, on the farm, in order to be able to do more, to buy a tractor on debt would not have been a bad thing. To buy the brand new car would have been, but not the tractor. Yet he didn't. Careful, careful planning went into it. But I also got money conversations from my mum's side. And I would say that that probably formed my relationship with money even more. So my mum was a, well, she is, she was a graduate. She was a teacher. She had her own career. And then she met this farmer and gave it all up. The whole career she gave up to go and move to the farm. And I remember from a very young age, my mum and dad, what sounded to me like arguing about money in the middle of the night. And you know what it was about? It was my mum's struggle with her own identity and her own and that independence that she mm. lost. Because on a farm, the cash flow is always, you know, kind of comes and it goes, right? So for every cent that my mom needed to raise her five kids, she needed to ask him for money. Mm -hmm. One and bank account. One bank account, one farm bank account. And actually, when I was really little, my grandfather and grandmother also still lived on the farm. And I think it was all shared. Mm -hmm. And my mom struggled with her own identity and that kind of independence that she gave up not to have her own income was really hard for her. So I was really small when I started having these conversations with my mom about how do I make sure that I'm not in a similar situation. So financial independence, my own financial independence always was just something so incredibly important. And I can say that, you know, since the first day that I started working, these two lessons were kind of in my head. No debt, be financially independent. And I think that's just, that's why I'm saying that I'm privileged. You know, I think often it's not about having a lot of money. In fact, I know a lot of my friends who grew up very privileged in very wealthy homes who have very, very poor and terrible relationship with their own money. Mm. And I think we're often in that sense privileged that we grow up in a way that we taught these lessons that we can then use ourselves later on in life. And that's it's funny how, how many times this conversation have come up now uh, with people we have spoken to. And then mm. when we ask them this question, it usually relates back to what they learned from their parents. And all of us know by now that you get shaped within the first seven years. I mean, a, a person's whole life is shaped within that first seven years, you know. 
And it's amazing how many people have talked about their parents or their grandparents mm -hmm. and the lessons they learned from them. And that actually shaped them to be financially prudent. Absolutely. Davi, I was just going to say, I think it's almost uncanny how every guest we've had on has spoken about those formative years and how that has shaped their reality as adults. It's almost, it's almost uncanny. But maybe if I can add to that, I think what I often miss, and you know, I also have to say, I don't have my own children, mm. but I'm the privileged aunt and very, very involved aunt of 11 nephews and nieces. And, you know, in a way, I'm that person that they always come to for career advice and even for these money conversations, right? Mm. You know, I can promise you they're going to listen to all of this and they're going to send it to their friends. So I know what a difference it can make. If an adult or a parent actually have money conversations with their yes, kids. Yes. And I think often what we learn or don't learn is simply observing what our parents do mm. or mm. what they don't do. And why have we grown up with this that we can talk about everything with our kids, but we don't talk to them about money? We don't have these conversations that teach them that responsibility. I see my friends and we often have these conversations where I say, well, the greatest gift you can give your child is not just a whole lot of money that can buy them anything that mm -hmm. they see or that they want. The greatest money gift you can give your children is to teach them the responsibility of working for it and managing it properly and not just spending every cent that they get or you know, the fact that they're so privileged that they get everything they want that they never have to work for. For me, like not having money conversations is just, I, I mean, I, I can't, I have to live in a world where we can talk about money and we can openly talk about it. Well, that is true generational wealth. I think, you know, people think about generational wealth as, as leaving a will and leaving a whole bunch of money to, to kids. And I mean, we talk about first generation builds it, second generation enjoys it, and third generation buggers it up. And it's, and it's normally very true. And that's because generational wealth hasn't been handed down. And generational wealth is knowledge. Yeah. Look, let me just say, please have a will. Please make sure that that side of your of, of your course. world is in place. But a hundred percent, Justin, I, I can't agree with you more. Well, like we always say, not only a will, but also, also a death file. You know, it's all good and well just having a will. But then if you die, no one knows what's going to happen with your with your computers. What is going to be the lessons you want to impart or the way you want them to spend the money, you know, or divide up their estate? Yeah, and it, it is an uncomfortable conversation to have. And I tell you what, when you don't have children, it's even a little bit more complex because if mm. you do... You know, it's kind of quite logical, you know, they'll just come in and, you know, take your stuff and, and that's it. If you don't have children, it's even more difficult because how do you plan for what you've worked for and what do you do with it? It's a conversation that my husband and I have to have all the time. You know, does it go to my family? Does it go to his family? Who will mm. appreciate it? Who will look after what we've worked for so hard? And maybe on that note, my belief has always been, and again, you know, because I don't have my own children, that. What I do today is that I spend their inheritance on them in terms of an education. Mm, because mm. I know that giving them a good education, whether it is even just assisting that they could go to good private schools, whether it is, you know, for their university, if it's not university, you know, whatever it is that they're talented for. But helping them to have a qualification in South Africa today, I know is going to set them up way better than them inheriting a whole lot of money 20 or 30 or 40 years from now. So that's been such an important contribution for me to them, not just these conversations, but also 
doing what I can. And, and luckily, my brother and sisters are open to that, open, you know, to me making mm. that contribution. But for my husband and I, it's the most important is education, trying to help them to all get a, a great education on top of everything else. And I think no, look, education we, extends beyond simply getting a degree and simply going in and getting a title behind your name. Something Darwin and I passionately talk about all the time is the value of money and the values that drive your money decisions. It's all very well getting a degree that gets you into a high income position, but what are you gonna do with that income? What are you gonna do with it to better society? What are you gonna do with it to better your community, to better your family? So the value of the values that you give is just as important as the money. And for money people, this often sounds like a strange conversation, you know? We're talking a lot in corporate circles at the moment about social responsibility within within corporates, and we're talking about socially responsible capitalism, which is a concept which Darwin are extremely passionate about. We, we cannot live with this concept of this huge divide between top earners and lowest income earners. And it's something that it's a value system which we need to teach to our kids. And it can't just always be about money. And you know, Davi was talking about that death file. Part of our death file, something that we are passionate about, is to leave a legacy for our children. Both of us have kids and we talk about leaving a message beyond the grave that our kids will understand this is the legacy we stood for. Uh, and that goes beyond the rands and cents in the bank accounts. And I think this is an important message that people need to hear. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I mean, it is so true. And, and that death file, I mean, you can see my books here. My file is right here. And it is. The problem with that is I manage our finances. You know, yeah. my husband, he's never done internet banking. I'm spoiling him so much that actually a week or two ago, I said, <laughs> darling, the two of us need to sit down. I need to teach you a few of these things. It's wonderfully comfortable for you that I do all of this. But what will happen to you? If something you know, if something happens to me, I mean, his answer was, "I'll phone your PA, and she's going to sort me out." And the point is, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to help. It's not going to work that way because he is going to be lost. And you know, it brings me to to one of the topics that I'm I'm also so passionate about, and it is women and their finances. My motto in life, you know, maybe it was developed from my mom's situation, is a man is not a financial plan. And and it's simply because, I mean, in our family, my second youngest sister very tragically lost her husband at a young age. In fact, the three children were, were all still, you know, like six, um, 13, 15. And she always thought that he was taking care of everything. And there were a whole lot of stuff that was not being taken care of. And when that happened... I, I can honestly say if it wasn't for me and my knowledge and the fact that I'm connected in our industry, she would have been financially destitute. She almost lost her home. She was in a terrible, terrible situation. And, and I will never forgive myself that I didn't know and that I never you know, influenced her enough to say, know what's going on, at least have those conversations. And if your partner, um, the financial dominant one says, don't worry, everything is in place. Don't take their word for it. Mm. Ask to see it. Mm. Sit down together. And whether you are working or not as a spouse, your contribution allow your spouse or your partner to be able to earn the money that they do. Mm. There is none of us do this on our own. 
if my husband wasn't as supportive as he is, if he wasn't okay for us to have a weekend marriage, because we literally only see each other on weekends, I wouldn't have been able to do what I do today. So his contribution is as much. It's equal. It's not who gets the money, the paycheck and their bank account. Mm, it is mm. joint and we have a responsibility from both ends to have those conversations. No, I completely agree. It is a team after all, you know. So Jeanette, I want to go back to you personally. So we know that you don't like debt at all, which is a good thing, but there must have been some mistakes along the way, right? What has been your biggest mistake when it comes to money and what has been the lesson that you learned from that? Mm, actually, it's directly related to debt and not wanting to have debt. So when I left Momentum the first time after 10 years, and that 10 years is very important because I always say the first 10 years of your investment is way more important than the last 10 years of investment, and that's all related to the power of compound interest. So when I left and I moved to Cape Town and I, I wanted, I met my husband and we wanted to buy a house, and I didn't want to borrow the money. So that's why I went back in the beginning to good debt and bad debt. So I cashed in my retirement annuity or my pension fund that I had at that point in time, paid stupid taxes on it and put it down as a deposit on this very house that 22 years later we still live in. So I started out almost owning a house outright without any debt, but it meant that I started all over saving for my retirement. And it was one of the worst financial decisions I could have taken. If today I go back and I take my financial calculator and I calculate how much I've, I've lost in retirement savings because of that first 10 years that was lost, this is the most expensive house on the planet. So it shows you that even the things you believe can lead you to some very, very horrible and bad mistakes because that's what I did. And, and literally, Having to start over again 10 years later means that you literally almost have to make a three times the contribution you would have had to make if you didn't lose that first, first 10 years of your savings. So uh, actually a, quite a real mistake for me that I've, that I've made. Yeah, it's scary. People tend to not really see that big picture. You know, they, they, they can't really see 10 years out and then picture how much of an opportunity cost it is. I went through a similar um, thing, actually. I bought my first home when I was in my 20s and I paid it off in cash. I thought I was very clever, you know. I don't have any debt on this thing and um, it's my home. Everyone always says you've got a home. But okay, the problem with that is you've got levies, you've got rates and taxes. But then once you work out the opportunity cost, of a home that only grows by about 4% versus an investment that you can get from about 15 to 20%. That is scary once you start looking into like 30 years down the line. Then you start, you want to kick yourself, right? Well, and you know, Davi, it's one thing many people kind of dabble in properties, you know, buy them cheap and build them up and sell them. Your own home is not that. I mean, here we are 22 years later. I haven't sold it. I haven't made any money on it. I will, Amen. if I add it all up, I could never make money on this house because Amen. of the opportunity cost of cashing in my pension yes. fund. I, that was the worst mistake. Now, you know, I think you said now people struggle to look kind of five years or 10 years into the future. Imagine how hard it is for people to look 40 years into the future. Yep. And let's exactly. just think about money and retirement. You're a mathematical guy, you know, Justin. So here are some numbers that I think is just fascinating. Just think about the fact. Let's say you meet. 
and you work for a salary. I've worked, I've had a salary in my bank account every single month since 1990 when I started in this industry, right? So incredibly privileged that way. There was never a month that I had not had a salary paid into my bank account. Now, you think about the fact that, what, 10, 15, 12% of that salary you put away every month towards your pension fund? Because in my case, wherever I, I've worked, I've always had a pension fund. So they, they basically force you to do that. Best mm -hmm. form of savings ever is forcing people to save into their pension funds because it means that you don't have a choice and it happens. The problem is that you do have a choice. You can make a 7.5% contribution and it can go all the way up to 12, 15%. So what do we all do? Especially when we're young, we start out, we say, no, let me, let me go for the minimum because I've got 40 years ahead of me. Mm -hmm. The problem is this, 40 years later, you earn multiples of what you started out, out with. Mm. And that money that you saved for 40 years, that tiny percentage of your salary that you saved for 40 years, now have to replace 100% of your last, last salary mm. for another 30 years. Exactly. Most of us today, when we retire, we will live almost as long as the years mm. that we had pre-retirement, right? So a small percentage of your salary saved suddenly has to replace, I mean, there's a replacement ratio of 75% that people say you can live on. doesn't mm. matter whether it's 75 or 100. Mm. The point is, if you don't have the benefit of many years of compound growth, mm -hmm. and that means that you don't put it just in cash, you are willing to actually invest in a properly balanced portfolio you will not make it you are going to outlive your money and i think that is the worst worst thing that can happen to people is that you outlive your money you're absolutely right i mean this is something Darwin and i talk about passionately about retirement planning and you know we we have a slightly different view on things because uh we're a lot more aggressive about it you know we actually tell youngsters whilst you have very little risk whilst you have very little commitments save as much as you can if you can put away 50 percent of what you earn you can retire a lot sooner than 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 the dream that has been sold to which is work yourself to death at 65 and retire you can achieve financial independence a lot sooner and financial independence and financial freedom comes down to not having to work for money money works for you and Absolutely. you know the longer you leave it the harder it becomes and the thing that is the key here is compound interest you know it literally is the eighth wonder of the world as it's been described and it's the missing link in finance that a lot of people don't understand but you know coming back to this thing of of having the discipline to save i'm personally not a big fan as an entrepreneur of retirement annuities and pension funds and the reason for it is because i like to self-manage my investments but the difference is i have the discipline to do it and i always say in the absence of discipline a forced retirement savings is a necessity is an it is an absolute requirement but for those who have the discipline to learn the financial system understand the financial system and self-manage you're always going to do better over the long term but you have to have the discipline and the one part that is the dangerous part is you have access to capital through self-managed investments and that is the most dangerous aspect of all yeah, Justin, I, I mean, I actually agree with every word you've said. I mean, I've advocated at a lot of the, the companies that I've worked for to allow people to invest 50% because mm -hmm. actually even the 15 
you know, if you're at the top of that, it is, is not enough. The point is, I think, you know, to kind of just maybe position the other side of the coin, the tax deductibility that you get means mm. that the taxpayer mm. make about a third of a contribution yes. to your retirement, you know, funds. Yes. I absolutely think that access to retirement funds is the worst sin. If there's one day a, a law that I think, and, and in this country, that will probably never happen, right? Mm, mm. But access to your retirement savings is is the worst because mm. it means you, you keep on starting all over. Yep. And, you know, I think there's a handful of people who are both entrepreneurs and understand this market and can mm. do it. Because often when people are entrepreneurs, they spend all of their time and energy on on building the business that mm. they're in and they might still not be financially savvy, mm. might still not be able to actually do what you do every day, which is to also understand it and manage their own money. Mm. And that is why even in a system where you don't manage your money directly on a daily basis, mm. it's still better than nothing. And okay. if we look at South Africans and only 6% of South Africans who can actually comfortably retire with the same lifestyle that they had before retirement, then, I mean, that is a, dire it is a terrible number and it just again gets back to i think my greatest fear is to retire without the means to be able to live your life and as you say you know you've worked for it for 30 40 years and then you get to retirement and in a time when often your health is not great mm. and you can no longer work for your money your money often also don't work for you because of the mistakes that you've made. But I want to ask you a, another question. You know, Davi's already touched on the negative sides and, you know, some of the mistakes that you've made. What's the single greatest decision you've ever made with money? Now you're really going to laugh at me because you would think that of all people, I, I would have a different view on it, but I don't. It's actually to have a financial advisor. And I'll tell you why. I work 18 hours a day to help manage a business and to help other people make money. And that means, you know, like the teacher with the kids that's not so clever or, you know, the naughty kids. Mechanic always drives I, the broken car. The broken car. I just, I've learned very early on that, that there's just so little time left for me to take care of my own finances. That's the first, not finances, but more the kind of mm, long-term planning, right? Mm. So that's the one side to it. The other side to it is that I know that when I start to think about money and my money and the future of it, I get this little bit of a kind of a heart flutter. Why? Because we get anxious about it, because we have a, an emotional connection and an emotional relationship with money. Mm. People can think that it's hard and it's random sense and it's rational. There's nothing rational about money. True. And the reason why I say it's having a financial planner and it's someone that I deeply trust. It's someone that knows everything that goes on in our lives. Mm -hmm. It's a relationship that I've built up over many, many years is the fact that he helps me make better financial decisions because he's rational about my money. I'm not. And he's helped me to make some really good decisions, solid decisions, and he specializes every single day, 24 hours a day, he worries about helping other people make money. And I'm happy to be on that bandwagon because I don't have the time to do that, to do all the research, to do all the implementation, to then remember every six months to review stuff. He worries about it. I've given him a complete mandate. He doesn't even have to phone me. 
before he moved money around or do things with it. Of course, we have our six monthly uh, meetings and, you know, then I interrogate him about everything. But that was my best decision. It's removed the emotional mm. connection between me and my money and time. And that's why I think that's the best I've, I've done. That was also a great tip you gave there. You know, don't just choose any financial advisor. Make sure to actually know the person, mm. trust the person, because you are basically giving him all your money and access to all your money. And there's not a day that goes by where we hear these horrifying stories about mm. advisors making the wrong decisions. You know, people should really take the time to ask the right questions and to know the person they are entrusting their money with. Yeah, and you know what? I I often wonder why we would interrogate every person that we get, whether it's the person that's come and look after our kids or clean our house or clean our garden. And we don't actually interview the person that we're entrusting our money to. We don't sit them down and say, what are you going to do for me with my money? What can I, what is your value proposition? How am I going to pay you? Why are we, we would argue with our lawyer on how much we'll pay them to do something for us but we won't do that with our financial advisor. <laughs> Why not? I, I guess it's a block in our brains about money. I mean, I, I somehow get it, but I, I work tirelessly every day to try and help people to break that. But I think there's a knowledge and we don't trust mm. our own knowledge. We feel embarrassed about, oh, I don't really know that much about money. And therefore, mm. I don't have these conversations. And I think mm. as an industry, we're guilty. Because I don't think we do enough to debunk all of that kind of jargon and make it simple. It's a life mission of mine to make things as simple as possible so that our clients can also really understand what it is that they have and what they're invested in. So I think it's a system that also maybe prevent us. But honestly, we've got to interview that person the same way we would interview anybody else that we entrust anything in our lives to. There's two people we don't interview strongly enough in our lives. One is a financial advisor and the other is the person that we marry. I always say this, this happens to be a happy accident. We will interview and shortlist and check financial backgrounds and criminal records for every single person that comes into our life. But the person we marry and the financial advisor, we just take it on face value. And boy, those are probably the two most important people in your life that's going to affect every financial aspect and success part of your life. It's the head versus the heart. When our hearts take over, when we're emotional, yeah. we don't always make brilliant decisions. So I want to know, Jeanette, in your observation of others and in your own life personally, what would you say is the single most important skill set you can learn to make money? If you had to talk to all the women out there now that don't have a plan right now, what would you say is the skill they need to learn to make that money? So, I, I mean, I think... A lot of it probably we've kind of touched on, but let's try and, you know, bring it home. I would say if you don't have your own plan today, whoever you are, not just women, whether you are just starting out, whether you are in your mid-50s or 30s or wherever you are, whoever you are, if you don't have a financial plan, then, I mean, it's like getting in your car and just starting to drive aimlessly. I mean, where are you going to end up? You have to have a plan. Right. If you don't have one and you, you're too worried and you like me, you don't have time or you don't feel that you have the knowledge, get yourself a partner on that journey with you. But have your own plan, especially if you don't work. Mm -hmm. I think often then we think, but I mean, I have no money of my own. 
why would I need a plan? Well, think about this. If you're a mom, so let me speak to our female listeners. If you're a mom and you take care of the home and something happens to you tomorrow, let's say it's it's an illness, um, cancer. I mean, we hear so many people nowadays, you know, wherever we go, we hear about a young person that gets cancer and you've got to go for that treatment. Mm-hmm. Are you on the right health plan? to help you through that journey? Are you going to end up in a state hospital? Do you have disability cover? Do you know that if you have illness cover, serious illness cover, that, you know, the money that gets paid out can help you be financially free. It can help you on that journey. Even worse, if you were to die, how is your partner going to replace you? Mm -hmm. Find another person that now need to be paid a salary to take care of your young children that needs a financial plan just to replace you even if it's not that you the earner or that you the dominant earner in your household you have to have a plan now that plan is often a joint plan but you deserve your own plan you know i want to say own it no matter who you are you deserve to have your own financial plan so that's what i would say that's where you need to start get help to do that and then my, the second skill set is just that discipline to start. Mm. I, I always say it's like planting a tree. The best time was 30 years ago. The second best time is today. Not tomorrow or Monday or a week from now. Today. And whether it is 100 rand a month that you squeeze out and that you put away. And then make sure that it's the first thing that goes off your bank account. The first thing, not the last. You don't save last. You save first. Mm. Before you've done anything. You save first. If it's not there at the end of the month, it won't bother you. Well, that's the point, right? I mean, often people live within what they earn. And that's why no one or lots of people who work for salaries like I do actually never get ahead financially. Because every year it's uncomfortable. Every year you get a salary increase and then you just increase your lifestyle. You just live a little bit, you know, more elaborate. I mean, often nowadays it only really, you know, kind of, keep you in an equal stream because you only get like an inflationary increase. I mean, not even enough often to cover, you know, all of the extra expenses. So it means that you never get ahead financially. The way to get ahead financially is to take some of it out of your lifestyle and park it somewhere, invest it somewhere, put it somewhere. Have an emergency fund so that when life happens, you don't have to go and dip into your long-term savings, but you've got money that you can just quickly fall back on, whether it is your car that breaks, or whatever it is. You have to have an emergency fund. Now, can you hear? This is all part of a plan. What happens if life happens? Do you have something to fall back on? What happens if the big things happen that you have no control over? What happens then? All part of a plan. I think that's solid advice. So now let's let's talk about friends and family. And uh, I'm going to be a little bit cheeky here, so I hope I don't get you into any trouble. But... uh, Obviously, as you succeed in life and you climb the ladder and you start achieving some financial independence, naturally you outgrow some people. This is this is part of life. Not everybody's going to grow with you. And uh, there's some lessons in that and some relationship dynamics changed. Are there any lessons you can impart from your own life in that personal experience? Yeah, there, I mean, there are, there are so many. And I guess... You know, again, you've heard before, you know, my kind of relationship with nephews and nieces. It's often 
when you are in a privileged financial position that I would say I find myself in today, it does change relationships because, and especially if you fall into the trap of becoming a financial crutch and you start to lend money to family and friends in trouble because it, that changes your relationship. It changes it from both sides, no matter how you look at it. Um, mm. Suddenly, you can't just have casual conversations about holidays because either that person feels guilty that they're having a holiday and they they still owe you money or, or they're the kind of people that actually says, oh, you know, I have a lot, I don't have to repay it and you become resentful. Mm. So I've always tried to separate the financial relationship in that sense. That does not say that if my brother or sisters or someone near and close to me are in financial trouble that I'm not going to step up and step in. But I think when you do, you've got to think long and hard about what that relationship is worth to you. And whether doing that is going to change it irrevocably and in a way that afterwards you'll think it, it just wasn't worth it. You know, are you losing important people in your life because of, of of bringing money in that sense into the conversation? So that is a tough one. It's, it is tough. It's, it's, it's tough because you sometimes see suffering around you and all you want to mm -hmm. do is, is you just want to step in. Have you ever thought of how you disempower a person by constantly just feeding the money and not actually in a way helping them back on their feet, but you become that crutch. You disempower them in the worst possible way because often that just almost doesn't force them to kind of take stock of where they are. So I've done that. I've helped, but there's a contract. There's a repayment period. If I'm, if I act like the bank, I am the bank. And then, or, or if I am the bank, I act like the bank in order to try and keep that out of the emotional side of our relationship, because I think it can destroy relationships so quickly and so badly. I had a mentor once uh, in my early 20s who gave me the most salient piece of advice when it comes to lending money, giving money and uh, being generous. And uh, I was feeling really used and abused at one point because I achieved success early on and I wanted to lift everyone up around me. And I think this happens when you come from an impoverished background, you want to help everybody around you. Yeah. And uh, I was, you know, very dismayed and explaining this to him and telling him how I felt. And he just looked at me and he said, uh, would you give an alcoholic alcohol to try and help them get out of being an alcoholic? And I said, no. And he said, then why would you give somebody with money problems money? And I've never wow. forgotten that message. I've never forgotten wow. that. Yeah, yeah, amazing. I mean, that actually just, it's, that's just the best advice ever. If we interview you, that is incredible. And it's, it's absolutely true. And we don't, we don't see that at that point in time, someone's desperate and you just think, look, I'll save them. I mean, you never save them because actually it's, have you ever seen that situation change? No, it doesn't. So no, they, all, they always come back. And then it becomes resentful because you still yes. have so much and I'm still in trouble and not, why are you not helping now? So oh, that, that is a trap. It's a terrible trap and it's one that I think can destroy relationships. 
So, Jeanette, I want to know, if you had to lose all your money, you lose your job as um, deputy CEO at Momentum, let's just say something something really bad happens, touch wood, it doesn't. But let's assume that is the case. And you have lost all your assets, something has gone horribly wrong. What would you do to get it all back again? Sure. Um, I think the harsh reality is how many people this exact same horrid situation or, or scenarios actually happened to during COVID, right? Um, yeah. The one thing that we think will never happen to us and then look around us, how many people, you know, this. So it, as much as I sit here and I kind of get cold shivers thinking, you know, may that never happen. Well, the point is the reality is it, it could happen and it could happen to everybody or anybody. Um, <laughs> right, so I'm not 20 anymore. So I'm in even more trouble then because, you know, when you start all over in your 50s, it's very, very different to if you were 20 or 30 or so. So because time is no longer on your side. I think what is important is to sit back firstly and take stock of who you are and the skills that you have. Because I have skills. Someone can take my money away, but no one can take my my skill set, my knowledge, my years and years of experience away from me. So I think the first thing is to sit, sit down and, you know, make that list, pin it down for yourself. I think this is a list that only has positives. Don't worry about the negatives. There's enough of the negative in your life. Own that. Because I think the first thing that would happen to you emotionally is that you just lose all um, kind of trust in yourself in a way mm. that, 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 I mean, I, I can only think it must be an incredibly tough situation to be in. So sit down, write down who you are, what you have to offer. And then I think the next best thing is, okay, what can I do with this? How, where can I take it? You know, in my case, I think I'll always have options, but simply because of 40 or 30 years of doing what I've been doing, but whoever you are and wherever you are, make that list and, Take stock of what it is that you have that you can offer. And then we were we were talking earlier. I think immediately you would have to change your dreams for retirement. You know, Justin, we had that conversation earlier. You don't, like you say, you don't want to work until you're 65 and work so hard and so forth. Well, the point is reality is you will probably have to do that. And being able to just go and, you know, travel and have all those dreams I think is then no longer a reality, not at that point in time anyway. So make peace with that and and change your mindset about, you know, what happens. And then yes, just a simple little kind of sum that I can share. It's a it's a it's just one of those things that I often talk to people about when they say I'm sixty and I don't have enough to retire on, what should I do? And I think in a way this could be a similar situation. Have you ever thought that by just earning just not retiring for five years, you actually score 15 years. Here's how it works. There's five more years that you earn an income. So you're not dependent on your post-retirement income, five years. During that five years, you can actually make a contribution to your retirement savings. So it's another five years that you score. So not only are you not dependent on it, you also can make more of a contribution. And at that point in time, save every cent you have and then thirdly there's an extra five years of compound interest growth that your portfolio gets because you're not touching it and you're not depleting it so by just working 
for five extra years, you actually score 15 years. And I think you almost then have to be as rational as this in how mm. you plan mm. for what is going to happen to your life after, well, from that point onwards, I guess. I always say it's like buying a car, you know, firstly, it depreciates by about 15%. But then also it's an opportunity cost of about 10 to 15%. So if you add that up, you're getting to close to 30, <laughs> so, which is quite scary. Exactly. These things add up and they add up so quickly. And we often don't, you know, we, we, not, we don't think about it that way. And I think in that moment of shock, it's easy to think all is lost and all is gone and there's, there's no way out. There's always a way out. But I think, again, you know, get your, your financial partner, your financial planner to sit with you and help you and, and just, again, be rational about mm. what you have and what your situation is. Because, I mean, that would be a terrible emotional journey to be on. I guess this is where Darvi and I are a little bit strange. Our form of entertainment is to sit with each other in front of spreadsheets and do compound calculations and liability calculations. And, you know, this is something that we're deeply passionate about and how this affects the end outcome. And, and you know, I think a lot of people don't get to see that picture. And this is what we're trying to get across to people. So, you know, the fact that you're talking about these numbers, I think it's so relevant for people because the average person doesn't understand the impact of simply delaying gratification a little bit in terms of the financial aspect of it. They don't understand the impact of working a little bit longer, spending a little bit less. All of these things have a huge compound effect overall. Yeah, totally. And, and, and it is actually, I mean, the one uh, kind of aspect to it is managing your lifestyle. Because living within your means determine whether post-retirement you're going to be deprived because you got to now do less or have less. The way in which you live is actually what you get used to. And even just being able to, because you often wonder, but someone would retire with, let's say, a final salary of 5 million rand a year. Someone else retires with a final salary of, of two, 300,000 rand a year. And both can be happy post-retirement. It has a lot to do with how you are wired and what you made yourself comfortable with. Pre-retirement that actually determines that happiness post-retirement because it influences whether you're going to be satisfied or not, whether you're going to feel deprived all the time, whether you're going to feel that you've worked all your life and now you don't have what you had you know, when you were earn earning a salary. And I think we owe it ourselves that our kind of older selves that we set ourselves up that way so 100 percent true so we we call it the lifestyle creep the more you earn uh, especially and this is one of our big tips is to set aside a percentage as savings work in percentages don't work in in rand values because if you work in a percentage no matter how much you earn you will force yourself to do things in percentages and so the lifestyle creep then doesn't become an issue and if you work on percentages, life becomes very simple. So um, I want to ask you one final question. We've, we've, we've spoken a lot about finance and, you know, we, we, we definitely want to continue to give people the right advice and inspire them around finance. But we want to talk a little bit about the current state of South Africa. Uh, South Africa is in a very depressed state currently. I think we're all feeling the heat of it, um, you know. There's voices out there like like Rob Hershoff. There's uh, some prominent voices out there that we relate to that are talking up for a change and saying, listen, enough is enough. Bad governance must bugger off. We need to come back to a reality in this country that 
Business needs to do business, government needs to govern, and we need to get back to a place where South Africans are proud about being South African again. So my final question to you to close out this interview, do you have any final words to inspire South Africans, the average South African out there? I'm just a deep believer in the future that we have, provided that we actually stand up and have a voice and stand for something. I guess that's often what is so so disappointing to me. It, it feels like, you know, the things that government nowadays stand for are all the bad things. You know, who really stands for rooting out corruption? I mean, you can mm. stand for it. You can say something. But if you don't actually do something about mm. it, then nothing's going to change. So I have hope. If I didn't, I wouldn't have been here. You know, it would have been easy enough to just be one of those people that kind of leave everything behind and, you know, go and start over somewhere else. I'm here because I, I, I work every single day to at least help our clients, average South African, be financially well off enough to be able to retire with dignity. But it's more than that. It is us in business, whoever you are. If you're in business, find your voice, stand up, talk. Don't just sit back and criticize from the sidelines. Do something. And even if it is something small in your community, whether it is it's someone that you're helping, whether it's the person who actually work in your home that you're helping their kids to get a proper education, do something. I mean, for me, I'm an action person. I'm a person who believes that, you know, you've got to take on those challenges, but not just talk about them. Um, mm. Stand up. Do have your voice, find your voice, and and also be heard. I think government need to hear us, every single one of us. Otherwise, they might think that it's okay. No, I completely agree. Every single action, it doesn't matter if it's big or small, it, it contributes to the bigger picture, right? Yeah, and, and, and here we are. I mean, every South African anywhere can make that difference on a daily basis by by doing something. Stand for something and then do it. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Jeanette. It was a privilege having you on our podcast. We look forward to seeing the direction that you plan to take momentum. Going into this interview, you said you have big plans to educate the consumer and get away from the corporate jargon. So we're very excited to see what's um, going to happen with momentum in the future. It was great having you on the podcast and we wish you all the best. Justin Darby, thank you very much and continue the amazing work that you do every day. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Money Podcast. To get access to our future episodes, please subscribe to our podcast via your podcast app. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel, Global Money Academy.